When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 38. We're recording on Friday, January 31st. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are the editors of BookRiot.com. Jeff, happy Friday, man. It's Friday. Um, I got a little bit of a cold, but that is not... uh doing damage to my happiness for it to be Friday. We've been through worse together on the That's show. That's right. That's right. It's my first week back teaching. It's my first week back from vacation. Uh, so we're back to the real world. The end of January, February on the horizon. Uh, is this the bleak midwinter? I, you never can tell. It all I feels mean, bleak. I don't know. We don't really get bleak midwinter in Richmond, which like, I kind of wish that we did. Uh, I was talking to um, uh, someone the other day, and we were trying to decide if January was, in fact, the worst month. The cruelest? Yeah, I don't know if it's the cruelest. It's just the worst. I, I think February is actually less pleasant, but at least the next month is March. <laughs> Whereas with January, it's think, terrible. And you're like, oh, and guess what we get next? Right, February. February. You're coming off the holidays. You're tired. Yeah. It's cold. The weather's crap. And then you have to think about going into February. Like, there's no light at the end of the tunnel yet. No, not at all. And that I think sense. really we should move Christmas back to January 25th. To January 25th? Yeah, because Some space we, you after get Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and everyone's strung out and tired. Mm-hmm. And why not space it out? We've got plenty of winter to go around. It's There's true. nothing else going on here. Anyway, that's my, <laughs> that's my thought. Um, well, let's get to the news. Uh, follow-up. Well, it's not really follow-up from last time, yeah, just a couple of our yeah, ongoing Connected interests. to some stuff we've been talking about for a while. <clears throat> yeah, so Scribd, which is the... Um, I guess one of the two big players in the ebook subscription service, the, the so-called Netflix for ebooks wars, um, the larger of the two, the one that has an Android app now, has taken their app to the largest Android platform, and that is, drumroll please, Da-da-da-da. Amazon, the Kindle Fire. Now you can get a Scribd subscription and app on your Kindle Fire, something which we talked about when we first were talking about Scribd and Oyster that we didn't think would happen. Right, because Amazon has all of the reasons in the world not to let you use anything other than Amazon to read books on an Amazon right. device. But the Kindle Fire runs with an Android app store. Right. And, well, uh, actually, it's Amazon's out, app store, I believe. Somebody pointed out on Twitter the other day that you can get a Kobo app for your Kindle Fire. Um, and it's super fascinating to me that Amazon is choosing to let this happen. Yeah. Um I don't know what um, I don't know what their policy is about letting apps in and like can, do do they just have sort of the grand scepter decision like they can let anyone in or out mm. um, or do they have some sort of policy they themselves need to adhere to? My guess is that anything that gets you to pick up and use your Kindle Fire is good for Amazon. That's true. Like you're maybe you don't buy books, but you know what? They're, you're going to buy movies or you're going to buy music. We're going to buy diapers. And uh, what I was speculating on Twitter is that it's also possible that Amazon is 
just really unthreatened, whether that's a smart position or not, right. um, by Kobo and Scribd, um, mm-hmm. possibly by Oyster, who is developing an Android app. Um, maybe they just don't think that the risk is big enough to spend time kicking them out. Um, yeah. You know, oh, sure, put your Kobo on your Kindle Fire, see if we care. Um, I, I think Amazon should care. It's, you know, pride goeth before the fall and all right. that. I, it, it's a lot of hubris to think it doesn't matter um, which uh, which apps people are using on your devices, especially if you have an app in that space as well. I don't know yeah. that that's what Amazon is doing, but it's believable to me. Uh, it's plausible that I Amazon mean, might be like, yeah, sure. It could be the, the lesser of two evils because maybe if they get rid of it, they're like, and people, maybe it becomes a big thing that people want. Like, well, I can't use Scribd on the Kindle Fire, so I'm going to get an iPad or a Nexus 7. Ah, interesting. So yeah. it could be more of a, well, we don't love it, but the, the, the other option is worse. But you also think about it this way. Like, we both use Macs, right? Right. And Mac, the, Apple doesn't prohibit you from using Google's Chrome on your computer, Thank even goodness. though it would be better for you if, they use, if you use Safari. So it's part of, like, you've already bought the device. We'd rather you be happy with the device and you'll buy enough of our other stuff because you, you know, you're on our platform. Right, you're locked into this ecosystem so, in some ways already. Yeah, so I think the thing to remember about all these giant companies is they play a long game. That's true. And that something like this, who knows what script is. What if it does turn into Netflix? Well, you can get Netflix on your Kindle Fire too. So. Mm-hmm. You and know, there's I, nothing to say Amazon might not try to buy Scribd at some yeah, point. <laughs> right. Or maybe they do, you know, maybe it comes a big enough thing and like, you know what, you're eating our lunch and we don't like n- this. Here's a here. thing that I wish that I knew more about. And so I'll ask, and maybe you know, or maybe some of our listeners know, is how much data about users does, like, does Amazon have about users of all those other apps? Does all the data just belong to the app or does Amazon get access to data from anything someone uses on a Kindle Fire? Or like, does know, Apple know, I know what I do inside my non, you know, Apple owned apps on my iPad? I do not know the answer to that. So if you do know, shoot us an email. Um, Let's see. We've got to do our first sponsor, and there's a little more Amazon follow-up here. But let's get to our first sponsor, which is Squarespace. They've been back. Where they're back. Um, we had them a few months ago, and we're glad to have Squarespace back. They're the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. We have a free trial and 10% off. You go to squarespace.com and use the offer code Readers. That should be easier to remember because you are one if you're listening to this show. So. People ask me, like, I love Squarespace, and I'm so glad to have them as a sponsor, and they, and they ask me why, and, and the reasons are these. So many of us need a website now for a variety of things, whether it's personal or professional or for leisure or whatever, and you really want a few things out of a, a modern website. You want it to look good, and you want it to be easy to use, and you want good support. And let me tell you, Squarespace do, does all of those things in spades. It's very easy to use. Drag and drop. You can move templates around. They have a lot of ready-made more than 20 highly customizable templates that already look good out of the box. But if you want to move things around, it's really easy to use. You drag and drop this square here, and you can put your Twitter feed on the side, or maybe you want your photo gallery down here, and you're about me in a slightly different location. Really great to use. Looks great, looks modern. It doesn't look like you have a website from 1997, uh, something like that. Yeah, please don't look like you have a website from 1997. Right. 1997. The other thing, especially now, I mean, we were just looking at the stats for our own site the other day, is like almost half of our visitors to bookriot.com are coming on tablets and phones. Mm -hmm. And so you need a website that's um, responsive to the form factor that people are using. And that's one thing that's really great about Squarespace sites is they're auto-responsive. You don't have to do anything extra. The templates are built to look great on whatever device um, one of your readers or family members or clients uh, or customers 
is, is looking at the, the site with. Um, they're constantly improving their platform, always new features, new designs. We can't even keep up with it. Um, and there's a, another thing, too. They've got great customer support. So you do pay for Squarespace, unlike some other blogging platforms, but you get a lot for your money. But it starts 20, at, what, 8 bucks a eight month? 8 bucks a month, and that you, know, you can get 10% off, too, uh, with the offer code readers. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, they've got people that will answer your call and help you figure stuff and out. Like they actually will answer your call. Yeah. Um, I was, I read something that they call their New York based customer service center, the Care Bear Lair. Oh really? That's pretty funny. <laughs> Which makes me love Squarespace a little yeah. bit extra. Um, but they really will help you and walk you through how to get things set up and you don't have to put in a credit card to sign up. So if you're, if you're going to do this free trial, at squarespace.com with the offer code readers and get your you know 10% off when it starts. You don't have to put in a credit card to do this That's free right. trial. Um, and last time we asked for some of our uh, listeners who use Squarespace to send in their site, and we talk about it real quick. And we're going to do one real quick today. Um, this is Kate's library.squarespace.com. She's using one of their subdomain. And her name is Kate, and I don't know how to say her last name, Kate. I'm so sorry, so I'm going to spell it. C-O-M-E-A-U. Uh, I'm not even gonna try to try Como? Camus? Yeah, it's something French probably. Um, and what you can see is that it, I'm looking at it on my phone next to my desktop right now. It looks great, good images, nice um, tabs across the top. She keeps uh, her sort of running book blog under her Kate's library tab and there's pictures of her kid and reading and their bookshelves. And she's not doing anything super complicated with the site but it looks about 900 billion times better than your run-of-the-mill book blog that's on some of the competitor platforms. So thanks so much to Squarespace for sponsoring the show, and uh, go check it out. And if you want to use it, if you do check out Squarespace, do use that offer code, because not only does that give you the 10% off, it lets you know that you, you came from us, and maybe they'll come back and sponsor the show. Cool? Cool. Cool. Now right, we got one, book award news. Yeah, well, no, no, one more. No, I got to oh, go back sorry. to Amazon. The big A. The big <gasps> A. Can't get away from the big A. Um, and this is this is uh, this one will hit you right in your pocketbook. I don't know if you're out there like me. I don't know if Rebecca is either. An Amazon Prime subscriber, which is you pay seventy nine dollars a month and basically get two, free two to three sh day shipping on almost everything. It's in the seventy nine a store. year, right? So um, what I say seventy nine a, a month. month. I was like, wait, I'm sorry, hold no, on. no, that's too much. <laughs> seventy nine dollars a year. But my husband does, and I was thinking, if he's paying seventy nine dollars, yeah, we a need month. to have a serious talking. Uh, seventy nine dollars a year, and you get free ship, free two to three day shipping on a lot of things there in the Amazon store, and you get, I think the lending library is for Prime, and some of the video. There's free stuff for Prime oh. members. Anyway, it's a really popular service. It's one of the hooks that keeps people in the Amazon, um, my household included, that you know if you need something in a couple of days, you go on Amazon and go get it, and it'll, it'll just be there, and you don't have to pay extra for shipping. Um, because uh, my partner in crime here, she hates paying for shipping, hates it, uh, with the, the fiery passion of a 1,000 haters. Um, so that, that's one reason we're into Amazon. Plus, we have two young kids, so we order more uh, household goods. Do you think we're invading Poland or something? But anyway, <laughs> the, the rumor is that Amazon has been, you know, they haven't been making very much money in terms of profit, but they have these millions and millions of Prime subscribers who are locked in, and they're like, well, if we just raise it 20 or 40 bucks a year, and we've got 10 million people subscribed, well, you know what? That math, I'm not great at math, but that's a lot of money you could just sort mm -hmm. of um, make uh, appear out of thin air. And I was thinking about it today, I was like, if they raised it just $40, I wouldn't leave. It's still worth that to me. 
Right. Plus, if you if you're ordering enough from them, like really, it's not free <clears throat> shipping. It's like you're paying at first, at least, right. for the ability to feel like you're not paying for shipping. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and then once you've used up $79 worth of what would have been shipping on orders, but that you got to tell yourself you weren't paying for it since you had paid your prime, then you're earning benefits. Right. And <clears throat> if you order a lot, then I Probably imagine... Probably at some point, that- it's kind of like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's like if you if you eat, fill up on bread, you're not going to make your money back. But if you go when, right to the meats, you're going to be fine. And also, I think with services like this, like once you've paid for the thing, you have a lot of incentive to use it. Right. A- and so now Amazon's got you, like you said, hooked on free ship, not just free shipping, but free shipping quickly. You mm-hmm. don't have to wait five or seven days if you pick the free option. Right. Yep. And it- you don't want to give up either of those things. And so if they raised it 40 bucks, you might just go to Amazon more, which is exactly what Amazon wants, right? right? Like, oh, I could go to the store for this thing, but instead I'll order it from Amazon because I've got this prime deal that I paid for. So I should try to get my money's worth out of it. And I think Amazon or companies in general count on things like that. And on very Mm -hmm. few consumers doing the kind of math to determine how much, you know, how many rounds of free shipping they would have to get to make it worth the fee. Yeah. And so I bring it up for a couple of reasons. One is that I know a lot of our listeners buy from Amazon, both for books and other things. And it's just something to be aware of so that you can check and keep pay attention. But it also brings to mind the effect of, of, of a company having a huge impact on one industry like books mm-hmm. that where they can do something like, well, we're just going to categorically raise prices here. And this has long been talked about as maybe Amazon's long term play for books is that they sell at or below cost a lot of times, especially for hardcovers. Um, and they've gained a lot of market share. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is, if they keep doing this and doing this, and some of the other competitors fall away, and it's them and a bunch of small players, couldn't they just then ra- raise prices up in the wake of uh, destroying all these people? And I, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen, but this is an indication that you can certainly see them doing it. They get a service that a lot of people use, they rely upon, and there's no good competitor for. What happens to the price? goes up. Yep. That's what happens. So uh, worth watching. All right, let's go to happy news. Okay, yeah. Now I get to talk about book award news. Book awards. Um, we, well, we're just coming out of big book award season. Uh, and... The good people at bookslut.com, which is a longstanding and pretty I've fantastic. I've been reading them forever. I know. Since I, I think, think I was a senior in college yeah, or something. Yeah, it was one of the very first book sites that I read also, where I was like, oh, people talk about books on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't have to be preordained by some giant publication. You can just, like, make your own and talk about <laughs> books online. Amazing. Uh, so the, the folks at Bookslut, and Jessica Crispin uh, is one of the editors there, have tapped into the feeling that so many of us have that um, when you look back on the books that won awards from a couple of years ago or even way back, it feels like it's always the wrong book. Um, that and, and she says in the post that we'll link to in the show notes that book awards for the most part celebrate mediocrity. It takes decades for the reader to catch up to a genius book. It takes years away from the hype publicity teams and favoritism to see that some books just aren't that good. And also it takes time um, to see the books that really are going to um end up standing as representative mm-hmm. of their era um, or as you know major achievements. I think sometimes we know that we're encountering <laughs> something great when we're encountering it, but it is really difficult to know what's going to seem 
important and meaningful in the long run. And so they're, they've created these awards at Bookslut that they're calling the Daphnes, but that they are jokingly calling the Corrections. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to you. Um, where they're going to award the best book from 50 years ago. It's great. Um, and, well, and so now they are working on the best books of 1963. Uh, since right now we are still in the process of awarding the best books of 2013. Right. Yes. Uh, so they have a list of um, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and um, kids' books and young adult um, that they think are contenders. They're asking for more suggestions, so there's a spot where you can email them if you have an idea. But they, they break out the books that won the award 50 years ago, um, which uh, the 1964 National Book Award went to John Updike's The Centaur. <laughs> I've read that and it's good because it's Updike, but well, and listen to the competitors. The competitors are Hopscotch by Julio Cortazar or Julio. I'm not sure. Um, Julio. Julio. Yeah. <laughs> Girls of Slender Means by Muriel Spark. The Bell Jar by mm. Sylvia Plath. Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut and The Man Oof. Who Fell to Earth by Walter Tevis and V by Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. And that's not even including the group by Mary McCarthy um, let's see, The Spy Who Came in the Cold, In from the Cold, mm -hmm. The Unicorn by Iris Murdoch. There's Boy, a lot. that's a toss-up between The Bell Jar and Cat's Cradle. For, that, that's mm -hmm. my opinion. I think so, too. The group, though, is also excellent by for, Mary McCarthy. Mm -hmm. But for, um, for things that have really stood the test of... Yeah. I did a post, I don't remember if it was on my old site or on Book Ride, actually, where I went back and did sort of a 10-year revision. You did it on your site, and then it was one of the very first things that we brought to Book Riot. Oh, right. You did yeah, it on yeah. both. Did it on both. Well, that's why I can't remember <laughs> right. which one it was on, because it was on both. But like looking back 10 years later, like which of these has been the thing that really has stuck around? Mm -hmm. The Centaur, I mean, Updike sticks around. But sure. like, I think this is... This is such an interesting project. Yeah, it's an interesting project. I guess... I guess the the question for me is what's interesting is in the case of the centaur, the bell jar and catch cradle have just kicked its butt in mm -hmm. history. Like it's not like well it won the award so it must have been the thing that people remember. That the, that's actually not the case. Right, and often like every year around book awards time, I find myself falling down the Google rabbit hole of like what won this award twenty years ago, yeah. and most of the time. They're books that I've either not heard of or haven't heard of in a long time or like I heard of them, but I had no idea they were that popular. Um, the same goes like once a year or so there seems to be something that circulates of like, look and figure out what the best selling books were of the week that you were born. And so I can put in like the third week of December 1982 and it'll show me and you can see like this was the book of the moment then. And 31 years later, no one even knows what this book is. It hasn't been in print for 30 of those years. Um, it's it's just so interesting how like books can how books can seem important in the moment and we've talked a lot about sort of like the publicity machine and the um the feedback loop that happens between publicity and sales and sales and publicity um to keep things in the con in the public consciousness of readers but cool to see yeah. somebody like i i don't know that this is a perfect solution but i don't i also don't think there is a perfect solution it's just interesting to be for right. someone to be taking a look and doing a little bit of like historical revisionism here I guess my thinking was that I'm not even sure that there was a problem. I guess that was my point. Like, if if the problem is that the award went to the wrong person, the effect of that, I mean, we're not writing them a $10,000 check, which is what you would have gotten, right? Right. Um, well, in the case of Plath, it wouldn't matter. But So are we trying to, like, do sort of an attention correction? 
that's the only thing you could really do in this sort of case. Right. And, I think and my, my argument is, well, history has already done it. That's true. Um, but maybe this year is an outlier. Maybe as they continue through it, we're going to see, oh, there are some other. But I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't really know. Um, I wonder what percentage of the books, let's say you went through 63 to 93, 30 years worth, what percent of the books would you reaward? Mm-hmm. That will be interesting to see mm-hmm. as well. Um, because just because 1963 looks like it made a mis- quote-unquote mistake, it doesn't follow from that that it's all going to be mistakes. Right, like the year that Beloved was published, I will uh, stand on Yeah, you and I will and stand s- on the ramparts <laughs> with bloody spear, <laughs> right. screaming Morrison. That forever Beloved yeah. will be the best book that was published in the year that Beloved was published. Someone will have to get into a time machine and go back. <laughs> <laughs> and try again. I mean, why why do that? I don't Can know. we just we retroactively done. give the book awards to like Marilyn Robinson and Toni Morrison for yeah, every year that they publish yeah, new we books? We could do that. What if they published a book in the same year though? Can we start our? Trouble? They could share. I think that they would share oh. with each other. Mm. No, oh, wow. actually, well, yeah. <laughs> Marilyn Robinson would be willing to share. Yeah, but I think that Toni Morrison might she, demand. I think she 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 um she's. <laughs> forceful we are far afield right now but i'm kind of enjoying it. i know well we're not too far afield we're talking about Tony Morrison and marilyn robinson that's what the show is about right you, you guys didn't know that we're really gearing towards an exclusively tony morrison and marilyn robinson podcast that's where we're going someday uh, the, it's the a long, beautiful dream <laughs> the long con here okay another book award tell me about this one this one's really it's fun. not a book award i'm sorry excuse me it's an it's award it's book a, related yeah, yeah. award um the american library association had its uh, big annual meeting their midwinter meetings last week in philadelphia which is you know, like a big librarian party and conference and continuing education and they voted um to approve a new prize called the lemony snicket prize for noble librarians faced with adversity this is amazing. This is so great. Like, as if we did not already know that librarians are just awesome badasses. I was going to say, is a noble librarian, isn't that redundant? I don't know. <laughs> anyway. So um, the award will be presented at the ALA's annual conference in Las Vegas to recognize a librarian who has faced adversity with integrity and dignity intact. Uh, and it will be given annually. Uh, to, and if a suitable candidate is not found, it won't be presented. But we know that there will be more than enough suitable candidates. Indeed. Uh, it's a $3,000 prize that is given from Snicket's, quote, disreputable gains along with an odd <laughs> symbolic object from his private stash, as well as a certificate which may or may not be suitable for framing. <laughs> Which just further proves also that Daniel Handler, who is the novelist that writes under Lemony Snicket, is also an awesome badass. I like this guy. He's yeah. so funny. That sounds um, amazing. And just what a great thing. Um, librarians totally. deal with so much. And we've talked a lot about the plight of libraries and how hard librarians are working to to help their communities and to help people adapt to the new kinds of literacy that are necessary in a world that's so digital. Um, And we know we have some librarians who write for Book Riot and they do deal with all kinds of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they do face adversity and it is, uh, it takes effort to come through that kind of adversity with your integrity and your dignity. Indeed. Uh, So good news. Good job. Good job, ALA. I think that these are our heroes of the week. Definitely. The Lemony Snicket Prize for Noble Librarians Faced with Adversity. Yeah. And I think those nominations are open, so we'll drop the link into the show notes. So if you know a librarian that you think oh, maybe right. could be a, you know, a good fit for this, uh, you should nominate them. Yeah, like, I'm not kidding. You just um, you have until May 1st, so you've got plenty of time. Got plenty and- of time. You can even create some adversity for them to overcome. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I don't think librarians need any more no, adversity. That's true. We don't need to manufacture it. But you just, just like have to whoopee, just like whoopee cushions <laughs> everywhere. You just have to write a narrative describing the adverse incident the librarian faced and how they responded, and the result and the resources that they utilized. Um, and we'll, like Jeff said, we'll include the nomination info in the show notes. Uh, so nominate your noble librarians and help them win money and possibly frameable certificates. Yeah, that may or may not be suitable for. <laughs> I'm going to need to see those objects when this is awarded. <laughs> I'm positive that? that we will see those. <laughs> okay. Well, Daniel Handler sounds like a cool guy. And if you have, I don't know, I, do you think, now here's my question. I'm trying to segue to the next story. Can you see me struggling? I'm, I can feel it. You can feel it. <laughs> Let's say you wanted Daniel Handler to come to your book club to talk about the Lemony Snicket book. What what do you think you'd have to pay? Well, well, he's a he's kind of a big deal. Kind of well, but you know what? There's Which a means new service. He might just do it for free, for free, or he might have a huge fee. New service profiled in the New York Times, um, and I can't remember what it's. It's called Book see, the Writer. Book the Writer, and it's a, a company that their gig is to book writers into book clubs. So if you're a, a writer and a book club is reading your book, and they're interested in having you, they can sign up to the service, pay a fee. Uh, $750 is the flat fee right now. It doesn't, see, it doesn't say that it scales by wattage yeah, no, uh, it just of the says, author. And 400 of that goes to the author, and 350 goes to book the writer. And they'll come and talk to you for a couple hours to your book club, mm-hmm. um, which sounds pretty cool, <laughs> I have to admit. I know this has been more and more of a thing for writers to join book clubs via Skype um, or other kinds of online um, mechanisms. But this is the first one I've heard of where there's actually a service where you you pony up the cash Mm -hmm. and the writer will come to, to your place. I think this is just New York now, unless you want to pay for them to travel Yeah, it looks like it's based in New York. What do you think of that price? Okay, I have many thoughts about I knew when we this. saw this. I saw this. I'm like, oh, this we're going to have to talk about this. <laughs> the first is that I think this is great. I, I know several writers who have driven all over creation to attend book clubs because mm-hmm. as less money is being spent by publishers on publicity, and as we know, authors are being charged with taking taking on more of their own publicity duties. They're doing all sorts of things. Um, and many of them are spending their own money and giving up their time to drive around and to meet book clubs in person, not just mm-hmm. on Skype. And very few of them are charging for it. So I think my first thought when I read this piece was sort of twofold. And one of it is like 750 is pretty high, but uh, it, this might give you access to the kinds of authors that like you don't normally have access to. She's talking about Zoe Heller, Michael mm-hmm. Cunningham, A.M. Holmes, people that show up on the New York Times bestseller list and that are probably a little bit too big of a deal to like just pop onto your Skype in their pajamas for free. Um, they don't need the goodwill. They don't need the goodwill of book clubs just in and of itself. Um, the other is... I bet there are a lot of writers who are kind of kicking themselves for not charging for their time now. Like seven fifty mm. seems a little high to me, but if you pool money from everybody in a book club, it's not that bad. Um, or it, depending on how your, big your book club is, that, I, that's what I was saying. You get ten people at seventy five bucks and each. Like if this you is, pay that much to go to a talk, and that's not to say that you would do this for every book club. No. But like if once a year you picked the author that you most wanted to meet and you pooled your money to do it and to bring the author and like have a big party with your book club. It's kind of great. Um, Mm -hmm. I was talking about it on Twitter and an author that I know sent me a private message and said that um, she wishes that she had been doing this because um, 
and, and I think she can safely be called a midlist novelist. Mm -hmm. And those are the folks that are really being told they have to go out and do all kinds of free events to earn readers goodwill. Um, but she said now she is charging a fee for book clubs that she hasn't interacted with before. She's on her third or fourth novel. Um, and the first couple times around, she just went to every book club that asked her. Now she has some relationships with them. But for new clubs, she's charging for her time because too many times she's driven an hour or two hours away. She's paid for her own gas. She showed up at a book club where one person bought the book and they passed the copy around to everybody to like 20 people or one person checked it out from the library and they passed it around. And so mm. now she's just spent hours of her time and everyone's time is valuable to well, talk to a bunch of people who are not buying her books and supporting her career, which is the whole goal of doing these things. Well, I've always wondered about authors going and doing that. I, I understand going to signings and book tours to, to stores, mm -hmm. but going to individual book clubs, even if there's 15 people there that all bought a hardcover full price, <laughs> the royalties from those buys I back to the author yeah, even if you think of a multiplier, that means that they're going to move, they're going to recommend it to other people and they're going to sell 30. Like, boy, the math it's, just does not come out. It really doesn't. And I think this is a problem that it sort of, it, this is emblematic of some problems that we have in publishing where writer's time is undervalued and the, yeah. the creation of art is undervalued. Like I said to a writer on, on Twitter who was like, oh, I would never charge to see a book club. And I was like, well, if think about music. Like you would never expect to be able to invite your favorite band to your home to play for your local music club <laughs> um, or an, your favorite actor to come to your house while your movie club discusses their movie for free. Like you would assume that it would cost something to have yeah. a private concert or to have Joseph Gordon-Levitt come hang out in your living room, like which, right. by the way, I would pay for <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, but I think this makes just, a lot of sense. Yeah, like, these, these writers are just told, like, you have to go do these things for free, which implies your time isn't valuable. Right. Or, I mean, because I guess the thinking is if you get enough people talking about the book, maybe they'll give it enough of a momentum or a push to have a wider sales experience. But I just don't really see that happening. I think this is a good idea. I think it's very reasonably priced. It's a New York thing only available in Brooklyn and Manhattan. So there's there's money thrown around the city on stuff so much dumber than this <laughs> that I, I mean, the price seems to me very reasonable. It's worth noting that the woman who started this, and I want to get her name uh, at least right to mispronounce, uh, uh, let's see, where did I lose it? I've got it if you need it. Yeah, say it. Jean Hanth Korolitz. Who is the, who's a novelist herself, but um, also the wife of the poet Paul Muldoon, who's very well known. So she's already connected into the literary world, especially on the author side. And it says she's only booked a couple more events. So it's not like this is a huge trend. Um, but it's something that I think is, is pretty much and, worth it. And I, I also think once you've started doing something for free, it becomes very difficult to then start charging yeah. for your time. So it's, this is, I'm glad this is out there in the world so that writers can be thinking about it. Like if you're a debut novelist with a book that's about to come out, <laughs> this is yeah. the time to start thinking about if you're going to go to book clubs for free. And I think Richmond would have a hard time getting book clubs to pony up 750. Um, right. But you could bypass the service and email the author directly and yep, say, my book club would love for you to come. We're located an hour away from your home. We'd like to pay you, I don't know, a hundred bucks. Like that's a mm -hmm. hundred bucks more than writers are typically offered. We'll pay you a hundred bucks and we'll cover your gas and you'll get to drink lots of wine. 
And if you go to bookthewriter.com, you can see the writers that have put in their names as being available. So let me just, let's see, the ones that, uh, Emma Straub, friend of the site. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she's, see. Emma is a great speaker, so yeah. she'd be fun. A.M. Holmes, mm-hmm. who's, um, what was the name of that book that was in um, the term mm, of books last year? May We year? Be Forgiven. Yeah, May We Be Forgiven is on here. Uh, let's see, any, there's the, Rick Moody, Laura Miller. Um, let's see. Oh, and Laura Miller is also the book critic at Salon, so you can yeah. have all kinds of conversation. Uh, Zoe Heller. Philip Gorovich from The New Yorker. Huh. That's a big name. Um, Michael Cunningham, author of The Hours. Yep. Uh, let's see. Yeah, a whole bunch of names. A whole bunch what of if names. Donna Tartt were on the list? People just couldn't throw their money at them fast enough. I know. Enough. I think it's really interesting. I, I wish this website had, it was a little more web 2.0 or 3.0 mm. where, you know, it felt like Uber or something where you like entered your credit card and you could just like book them and there was a calendar where you could see. Yeah who's available, but uh, you can enter your phone number and email and see what's going on there. So I hope this is a thing that takes off. Um, you know, it'd be fun if you had a book group that wanted to take like a, a class trip to New York. Oh, that would be cool. Right. And you could come and, and build a trip around meeting a couple of these people mm-hmm. and making that a vacation activity. Yeah. I hope it's a thing that'll take off too. It's like, obviously the idea of authors being part of book clubs is an idea that we have now and yeah. um, that many book clubs are using. And I've seen folks say, you know, I would never want an author at my book club. And I think that's fine too. Of course it's fine sure. too. You get to do whatever you want with your book club. Um, but if we're going to have that thing, I think it's important that we acknowledge the value of writer's time. And right. so it doesn't have to be seven fifty. but if you can offer a writer something um, to say, we don't expect you to come up and entertain us for free. Well, if you just do the math, you know, if they're getting 20% royalties on their hardback, right? Right. On, uh, you know, paying them 400 bucks to show up, that's just, that's like selling, I don't know, what, 200? Mm-hmm. 200 copies of their book, 150, 200, depending on the royalty structure, which I think most authors would spend an hour selling 200 copies of their book. Sure. Um, if they could get to you in a reasonable way. So we're going to pay attention to that too. More innovations. Do it. I don't know. How do you... <laughs> You sound I, not so excited about this. Well, listen, um, I think it's well known that you and I are, are on the on team innovation when it comes to books. Just let me put on my future girl cape. <laughs> yeah, right. So we're not haters no. in general. Do you hear the butt coming? <laughs> there's such a butt implied in this. Yeah, I'm just... so there's this thing, MIT, the guys up at the Media Lab, they do all sorts of crazy stuff, really smart people, um, men and women looking at a whole bunch of different ways to make technology and media come together in a personal way. And this one is the wearable book, which is a book that's hooked up to this harness that the reader wears. It's like a thunder jacket you put on your dog. Yeah, yeah, right. And the as you turn the pages, the pages are connected to the sensors. And as you're reading, the experiences of what is going on in the book are going to be transmitted to you through the sensor. So there are parts that are that will cool there are parts that will heat there are parts that will shake uh the the book cover will light up there'll be ambient lighting it'll um, tighten if like that'll tighten right um if, you're, if the character is scared so it's it's basically trying to make the book more sensory and this is stupid <laughs> i saw what you when you <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> I just 
just didn't expect you to come right out with yeah. it. It's so it's well, just beautiful when you do that. Yeah. Well, because I was kind of winding up for it, for trying to say something. <laughs> Except, let me say this, and I, I linked to it in Critical Linking, and some people had some uses for it that I hadn't thought about. Right. I was just about to say that, too. Yeah. This is stupid for me. It's What you said in Critical Linking was something like... Uh, I think that people who create things like this don't understand what happens inside readers when they read good well, books. Well, that was my first experience. Like, if the book is good, I'm, f- I'm feeling the feels already, man. Right. I don't need to like, oh, they're nervous. Let's tighten up your chest. And, first of all, right, I've got there, enough stress. I was just like the most tense reading experience that I've had recently was um, Roxanne Gay's novel, An Untamed State, which is oh, coming so you out mentioned that, yeah. in May. And like... I couldn't breathe, and I was thinking about what it would be like to already not be able to breathe. And then to you, have... you could possibly literally have an anxiety attack yeah, if you were already feeling that way, and your like chest is really being constricted. Good way to freak yourself out. Yeah. Um, but what some of our commenters were saying though is that it might be helpful for um, people with certain conditions, like um, on the autism spectrum, for instance, where they have trouble picking up on the emotional cues of other people. Mm-hmm that this might be something where they could experience, you know, kind of through exposure therapy almost, uh-huh. get, feeling what it's like to, to feel tense and excited and to imagine what someone else is feeling. I know nothing about that. Uh, and so that's why I'm giving that disclaimer. Is there, there could be some use there that I have no idea about, which would be great. Um, if so, I, is there, now let's take this <laughs> specific thing out of the ballpark. Okay. Is there anything that like, that any sensory experience you'd want to replicate that, I was trying to think of like, what about like sound mm. or a smell? Or... Like if the food in, yeah. if the food would appear in some kinds of Jetsons machine, right. like from books with great food scenes that Well, would... you and I both read a lot of literary fiction and, and most of the time it's raining in literary fiction. Right. Yeah, just almost all the time. Which is... So what if it could create that like wet cement smell? Somehow. Mm. That'd be kind of cool, You could right? just listen to Counting Crows nonstop and have that same. Yeah. <laughs> Though on the other hand, if it says it's raining and they're walking the sidewalk, I probably am already yeah. getting that to some you degree. Know, I just also don't know how much it matters to have your physical space be similar to what you're reading yeah. about. Unless that's a thing that you as a reader are particularly into. Like, well, like if it's summertime, we like to read books about like summertime, right, though? I mean, it's Maybe. not completely divorced from what we're, I don't know. Well, and I, this is a solution in like, search of a problem. I mean, That's there, kind of my Yeah, sometimes thinking. there there can be something really pleasurable about that matchup. Like, mm-hmm. I got a massive sunburn sweating it out this summer on the beach reading um, Instructions for a Heat Wave by Maggie O'Farrell, which is set during a huge heat wave in London in 1976. And, like, right. there's something that really makes sense about being... <laughs> if the being, book was hot. Like, like sweating. Like, really hot right. to pick up. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm, like... I'm skeptical about these things, but I think it's just because the right, I haven't seen the right one yet. Like, right. But somebody will get to the right one. And so I like that people are making the wrong ones because making the wrong ones means that we're on the way to something. Excellent hopefully, point. Totally to somebody agree. figuring, like you gotta, you, people have to make the crap ideas to figure out which ideas are crap and then to narrow in on how to do this in an effective way. Yeah. way um months ago we talked about that indiegogo for an adult toy that syncs to erotic yep, audio about that unfortunately um, i did think about that when i was reading this yeah which um i cannot report on yet because the fulfillment of the indiegogo orders has been hung up in production i can um, imagine but i i will let you know uh but I, I think like that's that's another thing that it's a potentially really terrible idea but somebody tried it and and what we're just seeing is People who work in technology 
wanting to experiment with all of the ways that we can make the things that matter in our lives interactive. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so in books, we just happen to see the ones that are geared towards books, but I imagine people are creating stuff like this that revolves around movies and experimenting with ways to interact with music more. Yeah. There's, there's long been this, like someone's been trying to do, um, like, I think it was actually called smell vision mm -hmm. in movie theaters where there would be, um, olfactory engagement yeah. Uh, with which, you know, okay, whatever. I, I guess I can see that. I guess my underlying feeling about saying this one is particularly bad is it feels to me that their premise, something about the way it was constructed and how it looks and what it can do makes it feel like their, their, their thoroughgoing idea was that the book is not enough. Yeah. I, Instead of enhancing, it's like trying to replace or I, like do something that a good book should do right. anyway. I think it's, this kind of assumes that you can put on from the outside right. the like the physical responses that really begin on the inside <clears throat> when you're a reader. And so in that way, I think that the vibrator one is smarter because it attempts yeah. like that attempts to to not replace a sensation but to play along with a sensation to right to enhance yeah. a sensation that presumably you're already getting from the reading material rather than to try to give you cues about what the sensations should be like, mm -hmm. like I don't need any help with my chest tightening up when I read something very tense. That's what happens when you read something right. very tense and uh, a f something forcing from the outside. A tensing is really different from that internal tension that like in inner anxiety um, that happens yeah. when we read, when we read something that does that also, this is really fraught. Like it would only work with books if you if you wanted to apply it to all the sensory things in a book rather than just selective ones, it would only work with books that had, you know, I, I would think things that were mostly pleasant to interact with, like with as much literary fiction as you and I read, I can, <laughs> I can say like, yeah. there are smells and tastes and like right. moments of physical sensation that are described in ways that I don't, I would not want any further interaction with. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it's just that I maybe a book that was written with this thing in mind might be interesting. Sometimes mm. that has to happen. That It can't be retrofit very well to things that already exist. Maybe it would be its own genre. Like we wouldn't just plug in any old book into uh, it. Sensory it fiction be like, becomes its own thing. Like it's its own thing. Um, like choose your own adventure. Like those movies that you go to at what, like Disney World where you, where everybody yes. sits in the big, like the big, <laughs> in long a big shoe box shoe on box a roller tray coaster. Thing. Right. And yeah. like the, all your, the seats all shift in certain mm -hmm. ways and they shake to make you feel like you're going over cliffs right. and looking. That could, I, I think this would actually working. be more fun for video games. That's my yeah. sense of it. Where it's, well, you know, the interaction part is, it's a little yeah, hard to imagine video yourself games in this. have tried that, right? With like the rumble packs and the hand yeah, controllers. Yeah, they still do some of that stuff with motion control. Mm -hmm. But if you had motion control and this stuff, it would be pretty cool. If you could um, wear a vest and like feel it when you're playing a boxing game and someone yeah. hits you. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. But uh, maybe this is not the right thing at the right time. Um, speaking of surprises, I I thought this was a joke at first. Like I, I really thought I was going to click on this link and go to the Onion. This was my like big Monday morning eye roll. Yeah. Uh, so Martin Scorsese's next movie, coming off the Wolf of Wall Street, is a co-directed documentary about the history of the New York Review of Books, <laughs> which is not the same as the New York Times book review. No, it is not. It's even wonkier and snootier than that. Um, the still untitled film co-directed by David Tedeschi will debut as a work in progress at the Berlin Film Festival next month. Looking at the, I think maybe using it as a way to think about uh, 
in the intellectual history of Anglo-America over the last 50 years. Might be a way of thinking about it. Even I'm bored to tears (laughs) by this idea. You know, the only thing that gives me a little bit of hope here is the New York Review of Books was born during the 1963 New York Times newspaper strike. Yeah, that is interesting. 1963 was a really interesting time in American culture. um, And that is the time when publishing started looking kind of like Mad Men advertising era stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a book that came out last year called Hot House by Boris Kochka that was about particularly um, FSG, but a lot about like sort of the history of publishing in the later half of the 20th century. Um, and so like if it, it could be very Scorsese. It could be like guys smoking in offices and drinking scotch and deciding well, how they're going. it's a documentary. It's not a feature film. It's a documentary. So it's going to be like talking heads saying, you remember that essay that someone oh, published right. about Joan Didion? Oh, right. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it says there's going to be special appearances. Michael Shabon, James Baldwin, Joan Didion, Chomsky, Norm Mailer, Sontag, you know, the kind of New York mm. intellectual class you'd expect from the 60s right. through the 90s. So... He's a good documentarian. He's done some interesting stuff about the blues as well. Um, I was trying to think if I could get Scorsese to do a documentary about some bookish thing, hmm. this would be way down on my list. <laughs> way, way, way <laughs> okay, down. Okay, what's on at the top of the list? <sighs> Harlem Renaissance. Ah. Yeah, something like that. Like an actual movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe the lost generation. Yeah. Um, Maybe the Chicago Renaissance after the Harlem Renaissance, mm-hmm. you know, you get um, Richard Wright and people moving that way. Yeah, I think I want. Maybe you got the new critics uh, at Black Mountain College, the sort of new criticism that built out of the mid '50s. Maybe you do. Um, maybe you do the Algonquin Roundtable. Oh, there maybe, you go. Maybe you do Walden, Emerson, Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, Walt Whitman, all those people who that I would watch. I would watch that in a heartbeat as well. Um, anyway, I just, I was like, really, he's going to pick a bookish one? It's got to be the NYRB. It really does sound like an onion yeah, I headline. Know. Like, if you didn't know much about publishing and you just thought <clears throat> that all of publishing was snooty and boring, yeah. how would you design a publishing documentary? Though um, probably we're the absolute wrong people to ask. Because if there's an opposite <laughs> to Book Riot, it's probably the NYRB. <laughs> right, probably so. Probably it's it. Do you think it's too late it. to just Jeez. write Mr. Scorsese and ask him to instead make a movie that he writes about like 1960s era publishing. Yeah, that'd be interesting. That yeah. would be Unfortunately, so much this more is already made, I think. Uh, so anyway, so that that's coming out and uh it was worth noting because it's a big name doing a big bookish project. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like well, that's a thing that's happening. Actually, you know what story I want him to tell? I want him to tell him to tell this next story, ah. which is man, my segues are just so on point today. Wow. <laughs> um so apparently a former teacher, uh, a Russian teacher, was detained in the Earl Mountains of Russia after being accused of stabbing acquaintance to death in a dispute about literary genres. Mm-hmm. The 60-year-old, 67-year-old victim insisted allegedly that the only real literature is prose. The victim's assertion outraged the 53-year-old suspect who favored poetry, and the dispute ended with the ex-teacher stabbing his friend to death. <laughs> Both and of the a, men were purportedly no drunk one. at the time. This is like something out of a Dostoevsky novel. It's also something out of a Portlandia sketch, but like two, you know, twenty something. I wish the, I mean, for a lot of reasons, validation. I wish the guy didn't die. But this is like not a joke. Like, I can't. This is our second, not the onion, but from the onion. Like, ha, 
I, don't, I, mean, I guess this, they just, there must have been something else, this, right? I mean, drunk people do stupid things, I think is the... The Russians do love their poetry. And it's the drunk people do stupid things. Drunk people do stupid primary. things. And this just happens to be the thing that they did and something stupid about. And also the guy who had the knife won the fight. <laughs> like well, that's, that's right. It's uh, It seems interesting to me for someone who loves... Like, why are you arguing about the only real literature? First of all, that's pointless. Like, yeah, right. You know, prose is literature... And the Russians certainly have a lot of fantastic prose to yeah. be proud of. Um, poetry you is just don't, like you just don't like, bring poetry like, to a knife. Fight. You just don't do it. Prose and poetry are like the two kinds of writing that are least likely to be questioned as literature. You know, it's not like the the victim tried to claim that rap is poetry is literature, which we have learned by experience. Yeah, this isn't this is an argument you could have had in like 1812. This is like if Facebook existed in 1812. <laughs> I guess that he had a knife too. He just had one. I mean, I don't know what the Russians. I do. guess you just carry around knives. I I don't know, but if, you know what? That is crazy. These guys. What else must are you gonna say? Had, this is this is a crazy. It's story. crazy. They these guys must have had some kind of history. Maybe they've been having. That's this, what I'm saying. Maybe they've been having this fight for thirty uh, years. Like enough with the poetry argument. And the, stab. Right, the the prose guy can't get his novel published, and the poetry guy just doesn't let him hear the end of it. <laughs> About how his prose is. Just think if I had told this guy that Fifty Shades of Grey was a must read. <laughs> think of what would happen to him. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be dead. This kind as, of wants to be a graphic novel, I think. Like, or like, it's like a Kafka short story or like an absurdist like Beckett thing. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's just I don't a, even know what to say about it. I think it's the weirdest publishing story I've heard in a while. It's, yeah, it's it's because it's just straight up nutballs. That's I, why. Carolyn Kellogg at the LA Times wrote about it and her headline or when she tweeted it or something was like, you know, there is a knife in this story and by the end it will be used on someone. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, how, how often do you get to say that about a piece you're writing not about? Not very often. Two people arguing about books. <laughs> Um, there's we, no good way to segue into our next not, sponsor. <laughs> except that we're going to talk about new books in a minute. And before yeah. we do that, we'll thank our second sponsor, uh, which is BookBub. Uh, BookBub is back this week. Uh, they are a service that help you discover books that you're interested in and get them at a great price. You can go to bookbub.com slash bookriot to sign up. It'll let them know you came from us. Um, and what it does is it gives you a daily email alert that tells you about free or discounted ebooks in the genres that you've checked off that you're interested in. Um, signing up takes about 30 seconds. You just enter your email address and tick the boxes uh, and you can toggle those boxes at any time. I've been playing around with my BookBub account and um, experimenting with which recommendations they'll give me. Um, so ebooks go on sale all the time all and the time. it's impossible to know like unless you're following all of the publishers on Twitter and the moon is in its seventh house and you're <laughs> online at the right moment, like which books are on sale on which days and how to get them. And so BookBub sort of takes some of the mystery out of that process. You can tell it which apps and which devices you read in, and then it alerts you to sales that uh, fit those specifications. Um, all the books are either free or deeply discounted. Most of them are discounted, um, usually about 75% off or more. And the thing that, um, that I think really distinguishes this is that it's not just a fire hose of recommendations. BookBub has a team of editors that um, take all of the submissions from authors and publishers and self-published writers. And like, you know, anybody who has an ebook um, that's on sale and their editors select only about 20% of the submissions to appear 
on the site. So you sign up, you get an email every day that gives you five or six eBooks that are on sale, that are within the parameters that you've set. And then you can just click your way to eBook happiness. I think both of us have ended up with books. We have. Uh, from it so far. They have about 2 million subscribers and they've sold more than 25 million ebooks through it. So people are using it. A lot of people are using it. Right. And there's a nice, I think there's a nice, like, at least for me, the emails that I've gotten have been a nice mix of discovery of new things Mm -hmm. that I'm interested in, but that I didn't know existed. Reminders of books that had been on my radar at some point, but that I never bought. And now that they're on sale, there's, you know, not much risk involved in picking them up, even if I end up not liking them. And then there's, you know, there's going to be stuff you're not interested in, but that's just how these things go. Yeah, so that's right. If you want to give it a shot, bookbub, uh, dot com slash book riot. Let them know that you came from us. Um, it supports the show and hopefully keeps them sponsoring, uh, lets them know that the listeners are trying it out. And if you discover something great through bookbub, let us know. Boy, it's a good week for new books. Man, it really is. I love this time of year. It is. It's We're getting into it. Um, January, I guess I didn't know this when I wasn't following it as closely. It's A lot of good books come out in January. Yeah, January, February is great. Yeah. It's almost as good now as October is almost in publishing. Almost as good. Yeah. Um, okay, lead us off. Okay, so the very first one is Department of Speculation or Dept of Speculation is the, way the <laughs> title. I don't oh, know. Oh, that's right. I didn't yeah. even think about that. I don't. I should have asked one of like the Random House sales reps on on Twitter how they're pronouncing it out loud. But if you and no put, period after the T to uh, show that's a yeah. Shorty? Oh, there is oh, a period weird. after the T. Okay. Um, right. But if you are googling it, you would put Dept of Speculation right, yeah. by Jenny Awful. Um, I read this months ago in one sitting, and I've reread it since. Um, it is about. Uh, marriage and in intimacy and infidelity and sort of all of the uncertainty just in, you know, sort of like the mid thirties to early forties time of life, but also the uncertainty in committing your life to another person, whether it's marriage or a long-term relationship and um, what happens when you add children to that. Um, it's so the title comes from the letters that the main character who's just referred to as the wife in the book um, it's third person and sometimes it sort of like flows into first person. She does interesting things with the voice here, but the wife and the husband would write each other love letters in their early days and they would postmark them from depth of speculation Hmm. um, as their sort of like their code name for all of that uncertainty, those things that you can't predict and what an act of faith it is to, um, to embark on a long-term relationship with someone not knowing what the future will bring. None of us know what the future will bring. So this is like, this is clearly uh, that, wonderfully depressing kind of literary yeah. fiction. And this was your pick for me in our um, our right. holiday guide. It's on it's on my list. It, and you picked it because we both liked um, I Married the, You for Happiness. I Married You for Happiness. I was getting that confused with um, the story of a marriage by uh, mm. what's his name? Greer. Um, anyway, th- I'm reading this. It's great. It's going to happen. It's, it's short a, too, right? It is. It's a short book. I think it's under 200 pages. I really mm-hmm. did like sit down in my reading chair and not get up except for bathroom breaks the day mm. that um, the day that I read it. You can read it in a couple of hours. It's very it's quiet and contemplative and um for for where I am in life and for where a lot of my friends who are um in their, you know, mid 30s ish mm-hmm. um place are sitting. I think she just takes on a lot of the really big things that hit us at this time in our lives and addresses them in a creative and really beautiful way and it's not totally sad. Um but very it's that, quite boy, it's that's very a, that's a, that's a <laughs> it's not totally sell. sad. Not totally sad. <laughs> it's really it's really beautiful. It's one of 
the best books that I read in 2013. And so I'm sure it'll end up on my like 2014 favorites since it's coming out right now. But uh, if you're, if I mean, if that's the kind of thing that you're into, um, it's yeah. right up the alley. And the next one is a book that you've been looking forward to for months. I am. I've got it on my reader right now. It's up next. It's oh, yeah? up next on my queue. Do you want to tell me about it? No, because I don't, I, I, I've avoided reading about it. And you guys talked about it in Book Rages, and I had to fast forward because I don't want any spoilers. <laughs> okay. So it's um, Silence Once Begun. I'm not even listening now. I'm gone for like the next 90 seconds. <laughs> By Jesse Ball. I haven't read it yet either. Um, because I'm holding out for, I, we're, I think we're going to discuss it on Book Rages in the future, but I just read Jesse Ball's previous novel, The Curfew, over the holidays, because you recommended it. I did. I like Jesse Ball. His first novel's called Samedi the Deafness, and then it was The Way Through Doors and then The Curfew, so this is his fourth novel. And and I've read the other three, and I, I really like him. And so Silence Once Begun, um, I've heard it uh, described by our friend and colleague Jen Northington as sort of a meta-crime procedural. Um, mm. Over the What it says in the synopsis is that over the course of several months, eight people disappear from their homes in the same Japanese town um, with a single playing card found on their doorsteps. And the disappearances have the crime authorities baffled until a confession shows up um, at the police signed by a guy who's a thread salesman. The guy is arrested, he's jailed, and he's interrogated, but he refuses to speak. Um, and the whole story is narrated by a journalist whose name is Jesse Ball, uh, who is grappling. This is a classic Jesse Ball thing. <laughs> right. Uh, Jesse Ball, the character, is grappling with not just trying to unravel the mystery of who's committing these crimes, but also the mystery of why he cares so right. much. And like, why did this guy confess if he won't speak? Did he really commit it? Um, who are the other potential players? It's. Uh, apparently you know, weird and creative and sort of a metafictional. It's straight up Jesse Ball. It's out of yeah. the Jesse Ball playbook. It's creative. It's self-reflexive. It's elliptical and confusingly and beautifully amorphous. Yeah. Like that's just what he does. Uh, actually, the curfew, especially coming out of the Cementi, the deafness and the way through doors, was even a little bit more concrete than I was used to him being. Oh, really? It's, it sounds like he maybe has gone back to a little more um, uh, opaque which I like. I mean, that's that's what you're getting in for. If you if you want all the answers and everything to be tightly um, uh, sewn up at the end, don't read this. Mm. But if you like a little ambiguity and a little mystery and a little WTF, I think that you're going to like Jesse Paul. That, that's my pitch, and I haven't read the book. <laughs> Why am I pitching the book? They're just new books. We're just excited about them. We're excited. I am excited. I'm excited about both so of So this two. is one, this next one is one I'm not excited about because I just couldn't, I don't think I'm ever going to get myself. Why are people talking about this so much? <laughs> it's Middlemarch, Jeff, and Middlemarch matters. I guess so. It's it's a book, My Life in Middlemarch by Rebecca Mead. I'm just taking over now. Sorry, Do Shinsky. It. I guess I just did it. And it's about her reading Middlemarch over and over again forever. Right? Which, which like is apparently a thing that happens. I guess so. So. I, I read Middlemarch in, in college and I like I liked it, you know, like much like I, I like a lot of English novels from the 19th century. But this is one of those books that people just like inhabit. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't I don't really get it. But that's what the book is about. It's like how this happens, why it happens. What is it about this book? And it's making the rounds, boy. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people are talking is, about this, this is perfect book. for people who love books and want to read books about books that they love. Like, you know what? This is I bet someone's in the NYRB is writing about this. Book, <laughs> Probably I, so. I think the concept is interesting that um, mm -hmm. that there are for some of us are books that we go back to over and over again and that become sort of touchstones that as we change and our lives develop, we read that book at each 
at each of those sort of landmark moments and start to see our lives differently through the lens of reading the same book over and over. Um, I've done it with The Sparrow like six times and Sula probably about that many times, if not more. And it's not intentional. Like, I'm not going to write a book about my life in The Sparrow. But I understand the concept here. I think that's really interesting to tell your life story. Like, it's a memoir through the lens of one book that this person read over and over again. Mm -hmm. And if it leans more toward memoir than it does toward like circle jerk about George Eliot, um, which would be a great show title, except iTunes would probably kick it out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I might be more interested. I think a lot of folks are like, if if you love George Eliot and middle March is a big, big book for you. It's cool that this book is out there in the world, but it's just not something that I find terribly exciting. I did like Rebecca Mead's book, one perfect day, which um, is a more journalistic sociological look um, at, the massive industrial complex that is American weddings. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that I can get behind, but if you're not one of these middle March fanatics, are you really going to read this? Uh, who knows? Maybe you will. If you do, if you're interested in this book and not a huge middle March fan, let us know because we need, I need some data here. Oh yeah. This is a, this is I a just assume one. it's intended for middle March fanatics with the assumption that there are enough of them to make a book worth publishing. Yeah. Um, and tell us about the headlining paperback book. Uh, this last one, The Sun by Philip Meyer, uh, is out in paperback. It's like an epic American Western multi-generational story um, that starts in the 1800s, uh, follows a family um, story of power, blood, land, and oil from, uh, in yep. one Texas family from the 1800s to the oil booms of the 20th century. Um, have you read this yet? I haven't. Uh, I was saving it because I was pretty sure it was going to be in the turn of books long list, and I turned out to be right about that. Ah. But I'm not sure I'm reading the long list now, <laughs> so I'm going to read it at some point. I really like um, Philip Meyer. His there last was book was um, American Rust. American Rust, I really liked. I, I really liked that too. And yeah, I've been trying to get around to the sun. Lots of comparisons to like Cormac McCarthy, um, Amanda, mm-hmm. Amanda Nelson, who co-hosted the last show with you while I was out on vacation, uh, picked it as one of her favorite books of the year. There was something of a like behind the scenes knife fight at Book Riot about who was going to get to have this yeah, as one of right. their yep. as their pick of the year um, at the end last year. Lots and lots of um, critical acclaim for it. So if you've been sort of waiting around, if if your thing is to wait until the big books of the year come out in paperback and pick them up, The Sun is, I think, the first big 2013 book to come out in paperback in 2014. Oh, I um, hadn't thought about that. I think you're probably right about that. Yeah, I think the way I've heard it described is, think McCarthy, but a little more epic, mm. like a little more generational sort of almost Steinbeckian thrown in there. It probably has bit. more punctuation. Yeah, right. And like names for mm-hmm. people. Um Anyway, I'm looking forward. I, so I'm going to read three out of four of these. There's no way I'm reading my life in middle March. I can't imagine I'll ever read that. <laughs> yeah, I've read Department of Speculation. I'm going to read Silence Once Begun. I'm probably, Silence Once Begun is short too, right? Yeah. Middle uh, The Sun is not. Right. I'm probably going to read The Sun at some point. Maybe I'll yeah. listen to it on audio. Oh, that's a good idea. I bet but, it's great on audio. Um, yeah, right, I don't know. Maybe sh- I missed the window in which to read and become addicted to middle March. <sighs> yeah, you have to be much younger, much older. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to read about not totally sad books. Man, like, I can't uh, the wait Department to get all the tweets about what a turd I am for not <laughs> Middle March. We're going to get an email about from the Middle Marchians. Uh, well, that's our show this week. It is. Isn't it? Yeah, it was a it. good show. It's nice good to show. be back in the saddle, man. Yeah, definitely nice to have you back. Uh, let's see. You can find us at bookriot.com all the time. We're on Twitter. I'm at Rating Ape. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, S C H I N S K Y. You can find us on. Book Riot on Twitter, Facebook, just do Book Riot for all that stuff. 
If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, that is the single best way to let people you don't know find out about the show through discovering through iTunes Magic Box. Boy, you think Amazon is a black box? Ain't got nothing on Apple. <laughs> but it does seem to be that if people leave reviews um, and do ratings on iTunes, that's super helpful. The other thing we want to tell you about, again, we have another sister podcast for Book Riot Night now called Dear Book Nerd, which Rebecca just put the second episode in the can this week. And episode two will be coming out on Sunday. So if you're hearing this, episode two of Dear Book Nerd will be out hosted by our friend and colleague, Rita Mead, who is a New York City librarian, and she is a delight. So you might check that out about, it's, uh, what's the tagline? Uh, it's a, an advice show about life, love, and literature. Yeah, books books and advice. Yeah. So um, it's about half hour or so, different format. Right, this, but, uh, this we'll week's questions like were about uh, digging through bestseller book buzz to find the good oh, stuff. That's I like that. And what you do when you're in a super massive, majorly depressing reading slump and you just can't find anything that you get excited about reading. Uh, that, those are useful tips. I'm sure you're going to have lots of nice they stuff. Are. Also, we have a couple of weeks left in the subscription period for our second quarterly box. Um, it's a quarterly mailing of books and bookish stuff that we love, that we think that you'll love too. You pay 50 bucks once a quarter. Um, we send you a box filled with things that we love, great recommendations, plus um, exclusive extras from authors and publishers that they create for us and that you couldn't get anywhere else. And um, we've got more than 1,100 Book Riot readers have signed up for this thing already. I think we're going to top out um, at about 1,500 here um, and we're adding people pretty quickly. So if you've been thinking about this, um, now is the time to subscribe so that we know that you're in and we won't run short um, before you're able to sign up. You can do that at quarterly.co slash products and uh, click on the Book Riot icon right there. We will send you awesome bookish mail. Great. Well, we'll talk to everybody next week. Have a good one.